Welcome to the Circle Stories podcast. In this podcast, we aim to explore the stories within, between, and around the various circles we inhabit in our lives. Uh, good morning. Uh, my guest today is, is Jen Folkers. How are you this morning? I am very well, thank you. Good. Um, I usually start my episodes with a check-in. I was wondering if you'd be willing to do that. Um, maybe a high and a low that you've experienced um, recently, and you can do either one first. All right. I would have to say right now what I'm thinking about is a high. And a, a high for me right now is starting to actually be able to think about what this fall is going to look like, getting enough details that, that we can actually start to work in earnest on, on how to get started teaching this fall. And another thing for me is that Andy and I finally broke ground on our house. So that, that is something Excellent. that's coming into being as well. We have broke ground and we have our Superior Walls Foundation, and we're going to pour concrete next week for the garage floor, which is that must turning into something real. Yeah, good. Yeah. And a, a low? And a low. A low for me is probably thinking about how this COVID thing is about to maybe get real here in Buncombe County. And it, it feels like I spent a lot of time being super vigilant and super careful. And now as I've started to think about how to move forward with life in this new reality, it's more likely that I'm going to accidentally run into it. Right. So we're, we're actually putting our safety measures to the test and yes. I'm getting sloppy on all my safety measures. So. Oh, aren't we all? I'm, yeah. I'm going through the same thing. And I think a lot of us are. So. Yeah. Okay. So it's time for confessions of a new podcaster. The check-in you just heard was actually recorded at the end of our chat because I forgot to hit the record button. What you hear next is Jen and I continuing our conversation about how she experienced quarantine early on. We now return to the conversation in progress. Still people who are frozen? Right. right. And, 
and there's a little bit of a, I think there maybe has to be a little bit of a judgment towards those of us who aren't mm-hmm. anymore. And, but I'm with you, there has to be a middle road and, and I don't know that we can walk that middle road through fear. Yeah. yeah. Um, so wearing a mask, I'm just having to believe that that's going to be protective and you know but going to Lowe's and going to the grocery store and part of me fears that we've convinced ourselves all that's okay because it's been okay all this time when there Mm -hmm. weren't really numbers right um but maybe we don't really know that that's okay and so um even continuing with some of the things that we did while we were frozen might be more dangerous now than it was and like um we're still seeing my parents Mm-hmm. And my dad has a blood disease that makes him have immunity issues. But, you know, they're still getting takeout food and going to bookstores and, you know, participating in the economy. And Do you feel like they're being as careful as they can be or taking the precautions that they need to? Being careful as you can be means freezing. Mm. And so I don't no. think, so balanced against that, everything is risky. That's and true. I just That's don't true. think, I, I don't think that the freezing, I don't think we can live like that. No. And, and there's a certain amount of risk. Yes. Part of me feels like maybe the risk is overblown. Um, one death, you know, is a de- desperately terrible thing, but that death could happen in a thousand different ways. Right. Um, how long and did you how long did you isolate as a family? Well, we totally did the freeze isolation only going out to the grocery store and wiping everything down with bleach water when we got home. Mm-hmm. Probably 2 months. And unfortunately, I'm feeling like and this is this sounds skeptical, but I'm feeling like those 2 months weren't the critical 2 months. No, I get it. I, it it almost feels like we did that too early. And I kind of feel like we did too early. I ha- even when we were doing it, I was wishing that we could have held off until spring break. Yeah, I get why we did it, and I get that you know New York needed to do that, and maybe mm-hmm. some of the places. But and I get that also the criticism that we didn't do it all at once. And mm-hmm. I almost feel like you're right. I almost feel like we got uh, isolation fatigue mm-hmm. when we probably kind of didn't need to from a scientific Mm -hmm. i know it's so but it was the unknown and that's the thing that's the um that's the corporal versus like ephemeral we just didn't know what we were fighting we didn't it's true and that's the all of the non-communicable diseases that we have from the just general sense of stress that humans have right now comes from that yeah that is the big public embodiment of where we've been headed for since the industrial revolution, basically, right. you know, right. I, and I've said that from the beginning, part of our response, I believe that part of our response to this whole thing was the generalized anxiety that we're feeling as a nation. Yeah. And it was, it was easy for us to freeze and shut down because a lot of us were on the brink of that before this COVID thing even happened. Like watching our, 
watching watching the fractionalization of of who we are as a country and i was thinking god this morning the degree to which it's not so much the corruption that's happening in the government right it's the degree to which i'm watching people deny that corruption that's mm. the part that hurts yeah more yeah. than the corruption like i feel like with nixon everything came to light and people were like oh geez yeah. this guy's a monster and I feel like this time it's all of those people who will not hear any of the evidence, scientific, political, nothing. They just won't hear it. And that's the thing that brings me the anxiety with all yeah. of that. Do you engage some of those people? Or if, you're, if you do, you're like karma, who, who tries to still have a dialogue with, and I'm using, I'm using incorrect language, those people. I don't like to do that. But do you dialogue with them? Or if you're like me, I, I just, I maintain my little bubble and I don't go out of it and I don't, I try not to engage them and, and because I just can't, I, I can't go there with them if there's no, I feel like there's no place to start. Whereas karma will try and, and point them to certain sites and try and reason with them. And which camp do you fall in or, or do you fall somewhere in the middle? So I don't know if you know this. I did my undergraduate graduate degree in intercultural communication. It was a liberal studies degree, but I studied rhetoric and speech. And, okay. um, I didn't know that. Uh, and so the reason you study that is because you believe that speech is important and stories are important. And so I felt an intrinsic need to engage or f to find a way to engage. And I, there's just two people that are on my Facebook feed that I will engage with on occasion and then I'll block them for 30 days because I just can't. Okay. And, and I've been listening to different theorists talk about what are the best ways to engage and what are not the best ways to engage. And so I've been using a lot of those strategies and mostly I just do it as a practice, not as because I believe I'm going to change their minds mm -hmm. um, or that I believe I'm going to educate them. Sure. But I've been using it as a practice for myself of what are the ways that I can be present with them and not disengage. And what I've come to is you can't give them information. Mm. Okay. Because it all comes back to I don't believe any of that information. Right. And so my strategy has been to try to ask them questions that mm -hmm. require them to go find more information. And a lot of times the questions are genuine, like where in the world, where in the world do you even get that? And sometimes they, they have an answer that doesn't resonate with me, but that is an answer nonetheless. Um, and then occasionally it's just been say, putting voice to, you know what, I find this patently offensive. Uh, like all of the attacks on Ocasio-Ortiz, am I saying her name wrong? Uh, Ocasio-Cortez, yeah. Cortez, all of the attacks on her and who's the Somali woman out of Minnesota, um, Omar, those people are being scapegoated because they're not white and because they're not men. Yeah. And um, so anytime I see anything in the feed, oh my gosh, some really, really offensive stuff about um, them. I'll just say, wow, this is really offensive. Just so they know. I would hope that they knew. But they still feel so like... My, they still feel like it's okay to pass that on. They still, yeah. Well, and they believe it. 
Right. Because the false media, for some reason, their media is not false media. Right. Yeah. Scary. So in your, in your training, the, the asking questions is one strategy. Are there other strategies that you can employ or we can employ to engage without causing such polarization? Can I draw somebody that doesn't agree with me into a conversation that isn't detrimental to, to both of our psyches? Uh, do you know what I'm getting at? I do, and I haven't ever. I don't know that at this point we can. See, that's <laughs> that as, as a just a, I don't know if it's my personality type or just what I, I, I so don't want to go there. And I think that I think I have to, and I think that's where we're at. And I don't, I, I have this, my, okay. So my, my wish and my theory is that we can talk about dogs together. You know, I mean, we can, there is something that I can connect, you know, they, they love animals or whatever. And, and can we at least do that together and enjoy those um, postings of cute puppies and, and, and will that be just a little, you know, um, what's, what's the anthem we sing? Um, that's where the light gets in and everything. Uh-huh. There's a crack and that's where the light gets in. Is, uh-huh. is that where we can, is that where I can in, engage some of these um, folks? Also, can I get them to tell me stories? Mm-hmm. You know, that's sort of why I started this. And I'm, I'm definitely, um, starting with people I feel safe with, <laughs> obviously the circle of mercy folks, but, um, you know, are there stories that we can all share? There are common stories out there. And is that a way that we can kind of engage each other? I don't know. And will that lead to something else? I remember when all the, um, all the activism around gay marriage was fueling up Mm -hmm. and um, we had a couple of things at our church in Minnesota that were talking about how to go door to door and engage people around this and the basic principle was to engage people's humanness to take it out of the public realm and move it into the private Mm -hmm. realm Um, which is another dichotomy that's been really fascinating to me there's always that pull right between what's happening in, in my public self and what's happening in my private self and what's, where do the public and private meet? And that's one of the crises I think that we have right now is that there are those who don't believe the Commonwealth is necessary, mm-hmm. that we can do everything we need to do by making individual decisions and plowing my own individual path. Right. And I guess that's the place where I am definitely a liberal uh, is that I believe wholeheartedly that if you have a group of people larger than a hundred, that's what the um, that's what Guns, Germs, and Steel uh, author, you know, Guns, Germs, and Steel, Mm-mm. the book. Just a second. Do, 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 do. I'm gonna get it because I his name is left me. Oh, Jared Diamond, and he asks the question why were some people able to conquer other people? There is nothing intrinsically about that people that makes them um, better than, than the people right. they conquered. Right. But um, why were they able to conquer? And guns <laughs> and germs and sure. steel were, that's kind of basically, but all of that comes from a horizontal orientation of the geography 
so those people were able to share technology with other people. Technology was able to move. Mm -hmm. And in that sharing, things got a lot more complex and they got more advanced technologies. But people that came from long, like South America and Africa, because when you move latitudinally, the environmental conditions are so different that you can't share your crops, you can't share your livestock, you can't mm -hmm. share your technology, your early technologies. So those there was more tribalism there and that those cultures weren't able to advance technologically because they didn't have access to resources and okay. sharing of resources, which is the thing that makes you advance. Mm -hmm. um, and so anyway, Jared Diamond, his, one of the things that he said that changed my entire paradigm is if you are in a group of people that's larger than 150, there are so many relationships possible in that group of people. All of a sudden, there's over a million different relationships that are possible. Mm. You need to have a government covenant, a set of, of rules that you're going to follow just because you're a part of this community, not because you have an interpersonal relationship with everybody there and you have vowed to protect them as individuals. Mm -hmm. So when you have more than 150 people, all of a sudden you need to have a whole different paradigm of what it means to be an individual. Right. You can't just be an individual, me relating to Carl. All of a sudden I have to be an individual. I promise that I'm going to stop at stop sign. Mm -hmm. I promise that I'm not going to kill anybody that I, you know, right. when you were in groups of 150 people and you knew everybody, if you didn't know somebody, you would just kill them. Right. But they're not part of your group. But now somebody can walk down the street and they're part of my group, even though I will never know them. Right. And that requires a different kind of thinking. And I feel like there are those in the United States who, who haven't, I, I'm trying not to be mean, but who haven't evolved to that yeah. level of, of Commonwealth corporate understanding. They, they are, they're still stuck in that tribalism, less than 150 people, I only have to be kind to the persons that I am on a first name basis with. Right. I'm only responsible to my own family and myself. And you can't have a civilization like that. Yeah, it does, it's, it's similar to the concept of the commons, where if you have one person overgrazing the, the commons and yeah. Uh -huh. yeah, um, yeah. Except yeah, you can police that when there are less than 150 people. Yeah, because everybody when knows When there are everybody. more than 150 people and there are relationships that you can't conceivably have right. within that group, then all of a sudden the commons becomes an act of faith. Right. And, and that's, that's where libertarianism always breaks down for me. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and if I go there with libertarians, it's like, well, where are you going to stop? Where are you going to stop being an individual? And I mean, you know, stop being, you know, the stop signs, the, uh, you know, the roads. It's like, you know, who's going to yeah. pay for that stuff if you don't? <laughs> If you don't believe in government, and it's like, yeah, right. so, yeah, that's where. Uh, well, and I have to admit, I like growing up in Iowa and existing in my little small communities. I didn't get that. And it's something that you have to be, it's not corporal anymore, right? It's something that you have to be abstract about. And if abstraction is something that is foul to you in all forms, science, political science, right. then is there a way to bridge that? I don't think there is. <laughs> Sorry. 
it's okay. <laughs> no, it's it's true, and that's it's hard for me to to come to for some reason. But how many years did you spend in Iowa? I I was born and raised. I my parents moved to the house where I grew up when I was six months old, and sold it when I was in my thirties. So did you? Uh, I I used to do. Um, roguing and seed corn. Did you guys have seed corn there or uh, was it mostly for, for corn oil? Um, there was, uh, I grew up in Mason City, which is the county seat. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we were a big booming town of 30,000. Right. And um, my dad escaped the farm. So oh, okay. we stayed as far away from farming as we possibly could but yeah there was there was seed corn um, yeah. as well as did you work in the, corn. did you work in the fields i never did i no. never worked in the fields i did no. work for a landscape company mostly watering plants oh okay that's as but, close as you uh, got those, to the agriculture huh? that's as close as i got to the agriculture yeah. <laughs> okay yeah 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 so did you have to detassel? We call it detasseling. Well, so this is this is a little bit different. This is um, there was that too, and I never did that because that was that was hard work. <laughs> what, oh goodness! Yeah, exactly. What roguing is is so you'd have six females and two male rows, and then that would okay. just continue the whole field. And we would go in and take out the plants that were maturing too quickly because they would pollinate too early. Okay. <laughs> So, so we would basically each have about 12 rows or so that we would walk down, you know, acres and acres. We'd walk uh-huh. down these and we'd be each responsible for rows on either side of us. And if you saw a plant that was too tall, you'd take a hoe and just whack it off at the base. And that was called roguing because they were rogue plants. Oh, oh my gosh. Yeah. So, you know, we'd have a crew of five or six of us guys and we'd get up crack of dawn and be out there first thing because you wanted to finish the field by you know, 11, <laughs> if you could. Before it got piping you know, hot, so, yeah. So lunch is about 9.30. And <laughs> um, but it paid well. It paid per acre. And so the fewer number of guys you had, the more, the more uh, of the pot you got. So, you know, we'd go out and do these big fields five, six hours a day all so summer. So did, did you create your own team and then yeah, approach? Yeah we, just, yeah, we just put our own team together, a bunch of guys. But, yeah. And then was there a clearinghouse that you went through or did you just approach local farmers and say, Oh, no, no. This was all Pioneer. Um, okay. Pioneer Seed Company was, was the ones paying us. So the farmers uh-huh. didn't, even, didn't even know. This was Pioneer paying us to go in and make their seed corn better. Uh-huh. So. I remember all the Pioneer signs. Yep. yep. Driving down the road with the, yep. with the lot numbers. And- now, they, they weren't supposed to irrigate while we were there and that didn't always. So sometimes Ooh. we. Yeah. <laughs> You know the big Better irrigation. irrigating than uh, chemicals. I don't want to think about that, but sometimes they had kind of a funny taste to the water. <laughs> no, don't tell my mom. Okay, <laughs> it'll be our secret. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. So anyway, those are my uh, my corn stories. But um, so you growing up in Iowa, at least you at least you know what the scenery is like <laughs> that I grew yeah. up. In. <laughs> acres yeah. and acres of corn. Yeah. Acres and acres of corn. And there wasn't. Well, and we were always told to not go in the cornfields because you could get lost and then uh-huh. and never work your way back out. But thinking about it now, like why wouldn't you just follow a row? <laughs> and and you had the same six hundred and forty acre grids that we 
did probably right didn't wasn't everything like mile squares your roads yeah. and stuff so you could find yeah. a road they were just scary. oh yeah <laughs> they were just scaring us it was silly they were silly they either that or they just had so little faith in those of us who didn't grow up on the farm oh <laughs> they thought our common sense was so low that's what they told the city kids is don't go in the corn okay <laughs> the city kids of thirty thousand. yeah yeah, just no. the name of the horror movie, Children of the Corn, which I never saw because I can't handle <laughs> horror movies, was yeah. enough to keep right. me out of the corn. Right, right. Uh, if you saw it, you'd probably go, whatever. Because <laughs> oh, Karma, Karma won't watch tornado movies for the same reason. She's like, Phew. <laughs> <laughs> I've, been, I've lived through those. I'm not going to watch a stupid movie about tornadoes. Yeah. Let's take a break. Let's hear from David Lamott again. His song, Dola Louisanne. I'm sure I mangled that, but it's a great song. Enjoy. Down in South Louisiana The moonlight grows on trees It blows down in the autumn And it washes out to sea Dances on the waves there Like a distant memory Don't I had played my songs and packed my gear Still I felt alright So I parked down by the water and I wandered through the night Where the street signs all speak French Beneath the shimmering street lights Dans la Louisiane And the moon shone so brightly I couldn't find a star The music flowed like sunlight From the fiddle and guitar the light that shone within us was the warmest light by far. Je dois dire, je vous aime bien. Dans la Louisiane. So I'm writing down this simple song with nothing much to say. Except I'm thankful for the music And the privilege to play But most of all I'm grateful Just to get to spend this day Dans la Louisiane And the moon shone so brightly I couldn't find a star The music flowed like sunlight from the fiddle and guitar But the light that shone within us Was the warmest light by far Je dois dire je vous aime bien Dans la Louisiane Dans la Louisiane
you said your teaching is ramping up and mm. you're getting some real feeling about what it's going to look like and some feedback from your colleagues. Do you want to talk mm-hmm. about that a little bit? When do you start? So teachers go back on the 10th and students come back on the 17th. And as of now, Buncombe County is doing a two-week orientation period for high okay. school and a one-week orientation period for middle school. In, um, in class orientation? In class orientation. Okay. So um, part of what I was asked to go back and do was spend some time trying to contact bilingual families or monolingual Spanish families that hadn't contacted the school yet to say if they wanted to be fully remote or if they wanted to come to school and if they came to school, if they needed buses. So I went in and started doing that and then started working on some of the scheduling pieces. And now the ESL team is starting to ramp back up again, talking about how we're going to reach students who dropped off of the participation last spring. When you went online and maybe they didn't have the technology or? So Buncombe County and Asheville City both did a fantastic job of getting technology out there. Okay. So we were already one-to-one. So it was mostly just a matter of getting the kids to take their devices home. Mm. And then we had also been, like at the high school and the middle school, in order for kids to do their homework, they need to have internet access. Right. So we had already been getting hotspots to families that didn't have internet before this. And then that ramped up um, even more once we realized we were going to be virtual. But some of those hotspots didn't work very well. Some students' internet didn't work very well. There were definitely glitches. But a lot of kids did have access. And a lot of the kids I contacted were, you know, just playing video games all day. Mm. And no one was holding them accountable. And so they they didn't stay accountable, which is kind of fair if you're a teenager. How many of your um, students are, did you call it monolingual and bilingual? I mean, how many of them have some English in their family versus none? Yeah, that's a really good question. So when you think of ESL kids, there are kind of five general categories. And the most high needs category we call SIF. It's uh, students with interrupted formal education. And those students, many of them spoke mom at home. Mm. Um, or there, there, I think there are 35 different Mayan dialects that are still spoken in Guatemala. Um, But most of the ones we get here spoke mom. And then there's another one that starts with a Q that um, a couple of them have spoken. So they spoke that language at home and then they went to school where they only spoke Spanish. And so the um, cream of the crop language education is a dual language where you get your home language and you also get your target language. And then slowly you get more target language and less home language over years. Um, But those mom students didn't get that experience in Guatemala. Mm -hmm. They went to school and instantly got Spanish. Um, So they speak Spanish, many of them, mostly well enough to communicate, but their academic Spanish is not great. And so those kids don't really have academic proficiency in any language. And so I've got a couple of those and I've got a couple of students who came from Honduras. Their education 
whose education was very interrupted. And a lot of them read and do math kind of at a second grade level. So now they're high school kids, and we want to get them to graduate in four right. years. Right. So I've got a handful of those kids. And then the next level is students who are monolingual Spanish, but they are went through the Mexican school system and got a very good Spanish education. And actually, those kids may speak less English than the side kids, but within mm. a year, they'll have surpassed them. I see. Because okay. they have all of the academic skills and really all of the language skills mm -hmm. that they need to be successful. Then there are kids who came from Spanish monolingual households, started in kindergarten, and in high school are still ESL kids. Okay. And those are kids who didn't get a good Spanish education because they were here, and they didn't get a great English education because they spoke Spanish. Mm. So when all their kindergarten peers were learning how to be in school and starting to learn how to read and starting to learn those foundational skills, they were surviving. Right. And so they just, they just got further and further and further and further and further behind. And maybe some of them have undiagnosed learning disabilities. Maybe some of them are just slower to learn. Maybe some of them, you know, come from families where they don't have the time and resources to put into learning, like all the extra stuff that we do with our kids at home. So those kids, that's kind of a group. And then there are kids who are kind of doing pretty okay and just need a little bit extra. I said five. Oh, yeah, the last group is a group of kids who tested out of ESL in third grade hmm. before the great learning slump happens and before everything turns academic hmm. and are not ESL kids, but they come from Spanish or other monolingual households and they're not ESL, but they're not succeeding okay. in their classes because they don't have that. English academic language to be successful. So um, I have 80 kids on my caseload. Wow. And of those 80, I have a beginning class of SIF kids, um, early kids who have Spanish academic language, and a couple of those like just have not been successful. Nope, those guys aren't in there. Just those that first two group of newcomers. Okay. Um, and I have a class of, I think, 12 of those at the high school. And I have one at the middle school. So the really, really, really high needs group. And then I have a class of 15 kids at the high school that are those, some of them are second or third year high level Spanish academic language. And some of them are, have been here. Some of them even were maybe born here, but just haven't been successful kids. In English. In English. Okay. And is that an approach that you you having the full spectrum of ESL students? Is that is that the norm? Is that the preferred way to teach from the very very number fives, the sives up to the higher functioning? Do you is that? I mean, I guess what I'm asking is is that the norm for ESL teaching? Is that how it's normally set up, or is there sometimes a, a more specialized like you only do the the level fours and fives and, and that kind of thing? Um, it's resource dependent. Okay. How many are, so, are on your ESL team? I think there are 35 of us in the district, in, in Buncombe County Schools. Okay. Um, and there are a couple of us who are just in one school that has more kids. And there are some of us who are in multiple schools. 
And there are even one or two that have three schools they're trying to serve. And so when you say resource dependent, these are the kids that need work and I have to take 80 of them and these are my 80. Yeah. But of my 80, um, a bunch of them have been here since kindergarten, speak English well enough to communicate. Their teachers can communicate with them. And so I expect their teachers to step up and fill those gaps for them. Okay, but they're still considered ESL. They're still considered ESL, and they have to take a test every year. Okay. But I mostly focus on those really high-needs kids, the ones that are not at all being successful. Right. And the ones that, you know, the teachers are, are real, don't have a lot of strategies for dealing with those kids who read at a second grade level in Spanish and um, don't speak any English. But since I'm only, I'm in two buildings part-time, so I'm at the high school in the morning and the middle school at the afternoon, ideally those really beginning kids would have someone like me all day and they would have, you know, two hours, an hour that's just them, an hour that's them with the more advanced ESL kids and then support in their regular classes. Right. We used to, Buncombe County used to have a newcomer center um, where those kids, middle and high school kids were sent, but they didn't have gym and they didn't have art and mm. they didn't have, so there, it was kind of an equity issue. Um, and also there were 35 middle and high through high school kids in a one room schoolhouse all day long. So it wasn't a great environment for them. Right. Um, so yeah, we're really, we're really struggling to figure out ways to meet the needs of those kids on a good day. And then the virtual piece definitely throws a wrench in all of that. I mean, I spent hours just getting one or two students to be able to log into their computer. Mm. And it was like, okay, First, I have to contact a guardian. Then I have to get the student's cell phone number from the guardian so that I, because the guardian is at work and the student right. is at home. And then I have to contact the, the child. And then I, you know, have the child take a picture with your phone and send me a text of what you see on your computer right now. Right. So I'm talking to them on their phone to get them to go on the computer. to And like, I had a couple of students after several hours of work, I was finally able to get them to log on to Google meet. Mm-hmm. And, and then I was like, Oh, here we are on Google meet. I can use this tab and we can read some stuff and we can do this and we can do this. But I, could, I couldn't train them to toggle back and forth between two tabs. Oh. So it's like all of that. I just had to let go of everything. Like here's my whiteboard. Okay, write this in your notebook and then show me with your camera. Uh, yeah, it was tough. And, yeah. you know, you spend four and four hours doing that, and four hours later, you've reached two students of 80. Right. Mm. That's, that's, kind of, that's kind of the norm. And um, this fall is going to be different because we're going to take attendance. Okay. And if students don't show up at 9 o'clock on Tuesday, then they get an absence. Okay. And at the high school, if you get 10 absences, you don't get credit. You have to make that up. So that will, that accountability piece will help a lot because, I mean, we did, we, 
we did just freeze. Yeah. And we said, we looked at each other and we said, you know what, given the circumstance, this is okay. This is the best we can do. Yeah. And like you said, we're getting to that point where that's not the best we can do anymore. We gotta, we're going we're gonna to have to make a new normal. And this is going to gonna be, have to make a new is, normal. This is going to be what it looks like for a while. And that's going to take making some mistakes. Oh yeah. The learning curve is, yeah. Where did you learn your Spanish? <laughs> um, I learned part of the reason I do what I do is that I studied abroad in college hmm. and I believed and had been told that that was going to be like the best thing ever and so great and wonderful. And I went and it was the hardest thing ever. Hmm. Everybody thought I was an idiot because the level of Spanish that I spoke did not adequately reflect what I was capable of. And it was really hard. The food was different and the culture was different. And the it just kind of brought up a whole bunch of anxiety for me and disappointed in myself for not traveling as much as some mm. people did or not learning as much Spanish as some people did. Anyway, so I, I came back from that experience and I learned a little bit of Spanish uh, doing that. But when I came back years later, I was around immigrants and just had so much compassion for what their experience was like. So really, I learned most of my Spanish from immigrants. Um, and that just that was a huge shame reduction for me to be talking to somebody who needed the information that I had. Mm. So I could use whatever Spanish I could use to get the information across. And they were patient with me. So my Spanish, I call it fluid. I, I okay. speak Spanish fluidly. <laughs> I can speak it quickly, uh, but I don't use academic Spanish. And it's, you know, when I speak Spanish in front of people who don't know I speak Spanish, they're like, wow, your Spanish is really good. But it's not good. It's just fluid. And there are like common Spanish phrases that I don't know and I don't use. And my students will be talking to me and they'll be like, you know, this. And I'll be like, nope, no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> like, I don't know how to say um, thirst. Mm. I don't know how to say teaching. I just, you know, I say teach as the verb. Or you, there's just all of this whole wealth of Spanish that I don't have access to. But you have lazy. But you have a street you have street Spanish kind of which probably helps you reach certain kids more than the academic Spanish would. I certainly use my lack of fluency as an instructional tool mm -hmm. because they oftentimes are laughing at my Spanish and the things that I say. And part of learning a language is just releasing the shame of doing it wrong. Exactly. And so by doing it wrong so regularly, um, they can see that modeled for them in a really authentic way. Sure. Yeah. And there are times when I think, oh, I should really clean that up. But, you know, yeah. there's a lot of other life that has to happen too. And you get by and you're, you're good at what you do and that's, that's enough. Well, and one of the things that I, you know, there are, there are certain rules that you keep coming back to that become themes, right? And one of my themes is... No communication is perfect. Mm. My husband and I both speak English, and there are plenty of times <laughs> when we miscommunicate, right? And we speak the same language. 
So communication is a, it's flawed just by its very nature, just by taking, taking something and putting it into words and then putting it out there and then somebody else hearing the words. I mean, it's just flawed. So there has to always be that room for error, no matter, no matter who you're talking to. So that's kind of a general principle that I bring up a lot um, with my students. You have to ask clarifying questions. Right. You have to say, did I understand you right? Did you say this? And if they only get that, man, they have better adulting skills than half the adults that I talk to. That is that is a valuable skill to be able to do that. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Thank you for joining me, Jen. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And um, I hope uh, we can do this again. Maybe do a, a another one um, midway through the semester and see how you're doing. Does that sound that right? That would be fantastic. It's so good to just talk it out because... So often these things just bounce around in the echo chamber of my brain and, um, you know, putting it into words and putting it out there makes it easier to deal with. Well, good. Turns it into something I can deal with. Yes. And I I hope you can release some of your shame from your year abroad and and move (laughs) move on from that. uh, That was useful shame. It's it's come back to to be useful in in the long run. Okay. Well, as long as you have dealt with that somehow. That's good. Well, it's good talking to you. Thank you, Carl. It was good talking to you too. Thanks for listening. For more information on things you heard in the episode, please check out our show notes at circlestories.org. There you will also find archived episodes and can subscribe to, comment on, and review the podcast. Break music provided with permission by David Lamott. Find out more about David and browse his catalog at davidlamott.com. Show music, Will the Circle Be Unbroken? Music by Charles H. Gabriel. Arrangement by Randa Kirschbaum. And performed by Jennifer Wilson. Any sound effects used in the episode are attributed and used under Creative Commons license. Details available in the show notes. C.S. Lewis said, The next best thing to being wise oneself is to live in a circle of those who are.